Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas, where each week we bring you some of the most interesting conversations and stories from across the bike world, while also on occasion going beyond bikes to look at some of the biggest ideas and innovations that could help us take better care of this planet that we all call home. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Bikes and Big Ideas is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. We first reviewed a Gorilla Gravity bike on Blister back in 2015. That was a nice review, by the way, Kevin Bazaar. And if you've been paying attention lately, you know that we've recently been talking quite a bit again about Gorilla Gravity. We published Noah Bodman's initial review of their new trail pistol. And then in our last episode of Bikes and Big Ideas, I talked to Noah to get his take on what Gorilla Gravity is currently up to. Noah, as always, had some good insights, but I still had quite a few questions. And among the biggest of those questions was how to square the fact that this small little bike company with a very heavy metal vibe was making some extremely big claims about some cutting edge materials that they were using to manufacture bikes right here in the United States in Denver, Colorado, and doing all of this at a pretty modest price point. Were these guys full of crap or delusional? Was this just more over the top marketing BS from yet another bike company? Or are these guys truly onto something here? And if so, how big of a deal is this really? So earlier this week, I went to the Gorilla Gravity headquarters in downtown Denver, and I sat down with Gorilla Gravity co-founder and president, Will Montague, co-founder and chief engineer, Matt Giaraffa, and Gorilla Gravity's director of composites engineering, Ben Bosworth. And after spending several hours with these guys, Let me just say that I don't think that they are simply spewing marketing BS, and in fact, I think that what they are up to represents a significant step forward. But the good news here is that you don't just have to take my word for that. Will and Matt and Ben do a very good job of talking about the principles that Gorilla Gravity was founded upon and how sticking to those principles helped put them in the position that they are in today. Furthermore, they also do an excellent job of explaining the significant advantages of what they call their new revved carbon and what I now call carbon 2.0. Now, all that said, in this conversation, we do still go from talking about mythical narnivore creatures, how these former DH guys went about winning some extremely competitive grants, and we get into some pretty detailed talk about cutting edge composites. And in saying all of that out loud, this still doesn't all totally make sense to me. But that is exactly why I headed to Gorilla Gravity headquarters in Denver in the first place. And it's also probably why I enjoyed this conversation with Will, Matt, and Ben so much. And I think you will too. And one last thing, in the show notes to this episode on the website, we've included some photos of Matt's personal trail pistol that he had converted into a mega smash. So check that out and you will see exactly what we're talking about in terms of these modular designs and how they let you transform a bike. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Will, Matt, and Ben from Gorilla Gravity. Well, we are here in lovely Denver. 
with three of the folks here from Gorilla Gravity, and this seems like a very good time to maybe have these three folks introduce themselves. So start at my left with Will. My name is Will Montague, and I'm the president and one of the co-founders here at Gorilla Gravity. Very succinct and nicely done. To Will's left, we have... Ben Bosworth, Director of Composites Engineering. That is a very smart sounding title. <laughs> and then to Ben's left, we have... Matt Giraffa, fellow co-founder and chief engineer. Um, to Matt's left, we are actually are very pleased to be joined by our podcast producer, Luke Alley. It's always very comforting to have him in the same room just because then everything that goes wrong is his fault as opposed to mine. So thank you so much for being here, Luke. So this is fun. Uh, we have been talking quite a bit about Gorilla Gravity on Blister as of late. In fact, in our last Bikes and Big Ideas podcast with Noah Bodman, I was asking him some questions about his recent review of the Trail Pistol, and we were talking about you guys. He raised some questions, and I thought, uh, you know, I'm going to be in the vicinity. Why don't we uh, take some of Noah's questions, a few of my own, and uh, go straight to the horse's mouth or something as the cliche goes. The Narnivore's mouth. Sorry? The Narnivore. The Narnivore? Yeah. Explain. He's, he's the, the skull figure on uh, on a lot of the t-shirts. Where did that name come from? It's just a cool name. You made this up? Yeah. It's like Nar if you took carnivore and gnar and smashed them together into one word. A, gnar, a gnarly carnivore. It's a narnivore. Well, one who consumes gnar. Yes. Exclusively. Ah, <laughs> this is so enlightening. <laughs> Luke Alley really liked that one. Wow, a narnivore. I got it. I forgot about the exact definition. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna definitely be talking about some naming stuff today. When did narnivore become a word and concept that entered like the universe? Pretty early on, 2012 okay. maybe. It was it was a number of years before we actually got to use it though. Yeah. Why? I think it was because uh, we couldn't afford a graphic designer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, we had a. It was a list of possible bike names, and so we've had this list since way, way early on. Where you know we've got the next thirty bike names already picked out and on a list, and somehow that was on there. And we we're like, well, I don't know if that'd work for a bike name, but that's pretty awesome, and we should use it for something. You have a list of thirty. This is awesome too. I love naming things. So you guys sit around naming things that don't exist but then you have something to shoot for in the future. Is that, is that how this goes? We haven't touched that list in quite a while because, you know, we, we haven't had to. It's just, I think the last time when we introduced the Smash, it was like, all right, pull up that list. But I think we already knew at that point it was, you know, we already had the name picked out a year or so before we even decided to make the bike. Yeah, so all the bike names are plays on band names. Yes. And then when we were talking about the Narnivore, all of the t-shirts are plays on album covers from those bands. And whatever figure would be on that album cover is replaced by the Narnivore. You I can go onto our website and see the images, rightgg.com, okay. under the swag section. <laughs> I might need to leave here with a Narnivore shirt. Well, you can. <laughs> the thing about Matt, that. Matt lit up. The thing about that. Yeah. Uh, so I was actually going to jump in there for a second and say whoever goes to the website to check the swag and like try to buy themselves a Megatrail mega t-shirt, the price is not an error, but it does come with a free frame. So heads up on that. Yep. Only way to get the t-shirts to get the frame or yep. vice versa. Wow. <laughs> Breaking news. Yep. Um, 
So Gorilla Gravity, we want to talk about this name, but we want to talk, I want to get a little bit clearer on the origin story. Uh, Matt Christie and I got to know each other riding bikes and racing bikes. Matt and I did several rounds of the Red Bull Final Descent, uh, which was the 12-hour downhill race down in Angel Fire. So we would talk about ideas for a company on the way to and from those races, and then one day decided to uh, take the leap. Talking about ideas on the ways to and from those races, but how did you end up in the same vehicle to those races? The catalyst was, uh, so Will worked at a bike shop that one summer, the first summer that he moved to Denver, and that was the bike shop I went to. Uh, and I was racing downhill, as was he, but we didn't know each other at the time. But uh, you know, I found out about that Red Bull Final Descent and said, well, wow, that looks really cool. I want to do that. But I was like, I don't want to do that as solo because it's like 30-something laps down Angel Fire in 12 hours. And so I was like, I want to find one person to do it with, and we'll do it as a duo. And I was trying to find somebody that was kind of a good fit. And so I was just in the bike shop and asked the manager. I was like, hey, uh, do you know anybody that wants to do this? Uh, and he's like, talk to Will. He'd probably do that. And so uh, we did, essentially. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of how we met each other. Gluttons for punishment over <laughs> yeah, endurance <basically>. events. Uh-huh. <laughs> Welcome to starting a business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect training. Yeah. Well done. It was, uh, can you keep riding, you know, 10 more laps down Angel Fire with a broken shifter and a tire that might be half flat? Sweet. Uh, we should start a business. Yes. Yeah. What year are we talking about here? So we started racing in 09, and then 2011 was when we actually filed our paperwork. Pretty quick. Well, two years of talking about it, and then starting, and then after we filed the paperwork in 2011, uh, we raced that same race in 2013 on the alpha prototypes. So it took us about two years to design and make the first couple prototypes. So in these car rides from Denver to Angel Fire, you're like, it'd be fun to start a bike company? Yeah, no, it was more of like, we see this opportunity, not like, we should just start a bike company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for many years and somewhat to this day, we used to say, if you want to ride your bike less, start a bike company. Yeah, thought everybody. Fun's relative. It's like type three fun. <laughs> yeah. You can be on type two sometimes. <laughs> nice. Okay, so as you guys are having these conversations, what when you say there was an opportunity, what was that opportunity or what? where were the things where you thought somebody ought to do something different here? So that's there's kind of a two-part answer to that, which one starts with our backgrounds. So my background is in mechanical engineering and Wales is in uh, businesses and marketing and startups. So it was kind of on both of those fronts, you know, just as a mechanical engineer and designing things and making things as a job and then racing bikes. I saw it as the bikes are getting more complicated, but not necessarily to the benefit of the rider. They're getting more expensive, but I don't see why they can't be simpler and less expensive and better for the rider. And then Will saw similar things kind of on the uh, company side itself. And so that's kind of where some of the ideas came from. Yeah. So the bike industry is filled with a lot of different brands and players and that sort of thing. But for the most part, they're all kind of doing the same thing and playing the same game. So we wanted to just try to innovate at each at each step. So everything from the supply chain, leveraging that to actually drive down the cost of our bikes and more efficient manufacturing methods, um, which in a lot of ways is, you know, how revved 
manifested itself. And then on the branding side and the customizability on the community building side, you know, this weekend coming up, we have the Pacific Northwest Camping Weekend for all of our riders. We run a group campsite up in Bellingham and invite everyone out and really focus on building community there. And then everyone is there on their Gorilla Gravity bike that they were able to customize. And so it's unique to them. And, you know, they picked out the the fork and the wheels and that sort of thing. So they got exactly what they wanted right out of the box and didn't have to swap a bunch of parts and that sort of thing. Ben, when did you get involved? So I would have gotten involved about a year and a half ago. So really as we were scaling, as we were starting to ramp up the whole carbon side of Gorilla Gravity. So yeah, Matt and Will hired me because of my prior composites knowledge. And it was kind of taking this you know, at the time, what was, you know, you know, a developed idea, patents were already filed, but, you know, taking that and making it real and bringing it to production. Um, Matt and I actually have really similar backgrounds that we, we both, you know, are mechanical engineers and we both were involved in what's called Formula SAE, which is a collegiate racing event. Um, so, you know, hundreds of teams from around America and worldwide actually go to compete building race cars with you know, sponsored money, which is pretty awesome as a, as a college student. And then from there, I, I moved on to a engineering services company called Pratt Miller Engineering. So they're, uh, they're a company that I would say just kind of specializes in dealing and uh, solving difficult engineering problems, everything from robotics to defense vehicles to composites, um, race car engineering. So so yeah, that's kind of between my formula SAE background, dealing with a lot of composites and then um, doing a handful of projects at Pratt & Miller. Um, that's kind of how I came to be, so. Mm-hmm. I wanna go back to price for a second. You guys were talking a bit about, you know, we were like, why do these bikes have to be one, so complicated and two, so expensive? Pricing seems like a real important uh, dark art maybe for every company doing anything, right? Like how do, how do you price stuff the right way? And not saying price was the only thing, maybe it was the primary thing. I don't know, as you guys were thinking about this, like, I mean, presumably like let's build good stuff, but get the right price points. Do you guys see these clear breaks in price where, man, if we can just eke under a certain price, it really tends to move volume or you get a little bit above a certain line and like things really slow down or get out of reach? How, how do you guys understand or think about that number with respect to the market? Yeah, it's, some of it's definitely based on competitive research. Some of it's based on, you know, what we think, what we want them to cost. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we always say that we're not here to make mountain biking more expensive, just more awesome. Mm-hmm. So some of it was starting with, we want our bikes to cost less than X and then we have to go back to design and manufacturing, and that's kind of a hard line for us. And so we have to basically challenge ourselves to solve the manufacturing piece of the puzzle, which is another unique component that we're able to control because we manufacture ourselves, and essentially force ourselves to figure it out. And so some of the price point is based on where we want it to be, and some of it's based on you know kind of the realities of the unit economics. Yeah, so it did not start with, here's our cost, so we're going to make our, you know, our retail cost. Why? That's, I don't think that's the correct way to, to price things in general. 
Matt, you talked about bikes. You, you said we wondered why bikes needed to be so complicated. And yet I, especially like talking with Noah Bodman, sometimes uh, he worries that maybe certain components or shocks are getting dumbed down too much where, you know, this is a balancing act, I guess. So I, I'm curious to hear you talk about, you're saying bikes are getting too complicated. And yet on the other hand, we have some people wishing that there was a little more complexity put into say forks uh, in terms of tunability and the like. So yeah. flesh that out for me. Do we have enough time for this? Uh, yes. Anyway, yeah, that's a tricky subject. Uh, there's a lot of gray areas to that one. Uh, and I could definitely see how some people might hear what I said and been like, what? You guys have a geo-adjust headset and plush and crush mode and you can convert the bike to all these different models? What are you talking about? Uh, but it's things have kind of evolved and it's still the bikes are still relatively simple. There's not, you know, weird things going on there that don't need to be there. Everything that's there has a purpose. And we question all the time whether these things make sense and whether they're worth it. And there's things that in the past, even that I came up with of like, oh, we're going to put this in and it's going to be awesome. That ultimately it was like, eh, I don't know if this is worth it. Let's kill it. So it's always kind of a gray area and a bit of a fine line. And we're always kind of questioning things. But as far as uh, bikes uh, getting simpler, uh, I think that to the benefit of most riders, and I would say at least 90 percent, uh, if bikes are have a little less adjustment and just work well without needing to be fiddled with, that's going to be the to the benefit of most riders. And you can see that in even our design. So like plush and crush mode, it's simple. It's, it's one or it's the other. And they both ride distinctly different, but the difference in how it rides was carefully chosen to make sure that it was noticeable. So your average rider can ride them both and say, oh yeah, that rides different, but not so big that one's usable and one's not usable. Same thing with the Geo Adjust. It's, there's two settings, and they're both usable, but the whole system's really simple. Uh, so I think going back to suspension, it's a similar thing. So uh, I personally am kind of a fan of uh, less external adjustments on suspension. Uh, I think it's to the benefit of most riders if uh, there's less adjustment and it just uh, works well kind of without needing to adjust a ton of things. And it's been proven that that can be done. Uh, RockShox, I think, has done a really good job of this, uh, which is, you know, we've seen that in kind of just demo bike usage. Uh, it's just really easy to set those up. And even with not a ton of adjustments, they just seem to work well for a huge range of people. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, for the people that do want to kind of go down the rabbit hole and really fine tune for that last couple percent, that's out there and that's awesome. And, you know, I think that should be there. Like, for example, push kind of owns that. Uh, so you can tune those down to the last quarter of a percent. And that's awesome. But for the kind of bulk of the market, I think not a lot of external adjustments on suspension is a good thing. It ends up to the benefit of the riders. And designing suspension that works really well without many external adjustments is quite, quite impressive uh, when you don't need them. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, back to Matt's point about RockShox does that really well. It's really hard to set those forks up so they feel bad. Yeah, which is from an engineering standpoint, we actually talk about this, you know, fairly regularly that we're pretty impressed with how they can do that. Back to 2011. So you guys are like, let's start a bike company. 
we're going to try to get things priced the way we think. We want to get some bikes that are uh, uncomplicated in ways we think are appropriate and will be very advantageous for a number of riders. And you start making, you start with aluminum. And this is the big reveal. I can't believe we've gone this far without talking about new carbon. I mean, this obviously is the the big, relatively recent reveal, right? Revved. And we're going to be talking quite a bit about carbon here, but I'm curious, uh, did you guys feel pressure as we're going carbon, carbon, everything in the bike world? Did you feel a pressure of like, if we don't start putting out carbon offerings, this could get very problematic? You know, we certainly have big ambitions for the company. And so there is an element of, you know, being able to keep up with kind of the latest and greatest technology, um, at least as perceived by the market. But we also created uh, a hard line for us. The company's been based on doing things different at each step. And so we knew we didn't want to just come out with something that's that's similar or doing it the same way as what is currently out there, because then that kind of violates the, the company ethos. Uh, so if we're not going to make something better, why do it? And we decided that we wanted to do carbon and we just kind of had this feeling that there had to be a better way to do it just because the current method, the traditional method is so labor intensive and you know, it's a pretty dirty process and it's, 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 there's just so many inefficiencies and things that could be improved on. And so we sort of recognized that and just believed that there had to be a better way to do it. And so we, you know, we set our criteria, which was, you know, we wanted to fundamentally improve the performance, specifically impact resistance. And we wanted to improve the manufacturability to the point where we can do it in-house cost effectively. And essentially the method that we wound up coming up with satisfied those. And even to a further extent, it, it has a ton of promise to sort of revolutionize how all bikes are made because we're able to, you know, take a process that is so labor intensive over in Asia, it's not recyclable, supply chain is definitely not great for the environment using that method and change all of those things. So now we can produce them in-house in the US, in Colorado for essentially the same unit cost as overseas, but have all these additional benefits, impact resistance, uh, the shorter supply chain, which does lower costs, um, as well as, you know, it's much greener because putting things on boats and flying them all over the world is not great for greenhouse gases. So we kind of wound up exceeding our, even our own expectations. Yeah. So kind of on the specifically kind of from the engineering's perspective, it was, you know, this kind of like what Will touched on was this, the traditional carbon fiber composite uh, manufacturing techniques have been around for a long time. And I had some experience with it. I've worked at Adam Aircraft where we made uh, carbon fiber jets uh, and using the traditional method. And it was just took so long. Uh, and I remember thinking like, we're making carbon fiber planes and it really doesn't seem that high tech. It seemed kind of like a, you know, well, I mean, you can make that stuff in your garage. Yeah. Carbon's so. a lot more primitive than people really yeah, take exactly. into account. Yeah. And it's, I always, I've told the story before, but um, both Matt and I have, you know, traditional com composite experience. And when I came in for my interview, um, you know, Matt and Will set a box of parts on the desk after I had signed my NDA. 
and I was pretty much sold right then. I was like, okay, these these guys are onto something. I'm not sure where this is going to lead to, but I think this is pretty big. So huh. that was pretty much the point where I made the decision to join the team and, you know. A box of parts. So if all I all I have to do is just pull out a fancy box with some things in it, and you can probably it's gonna bounce. have the right parts in it. You yeah. gotta have the right parts. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So as a composites guy, they yeah. set down a box. They put some things on the table. You either recognize these things, or you're like, I'm not sure what that is, but that looks like an advancement to the composites I'm used to seeing. Absolutely. Yeah. Without going into too many details. Yeah. yeah they were uh, they were impressive parts, and that's coming from a guy who's been around. The block a little bit on uh, on composites. Yeah, so essentially it was, you know, being involved with composites of like, oh man, that traditional method is kind of primitive. So, and it's been around for a long time. Certainly there's got to be a better way. So when Will and I were talking about doing carbon, I mean, we started dipping our toes into it in, back in 2015, trying to look for a way to, let's maybe try to make just one part on the frame out of carbon and we'll, we'll see how that goes. And that didn't pan out. But then when it kicked off was, you know, what he was talking about earlier is there's a, you know, with our ambitions for the company, it included, well, we're probably going to need to have a carbon frame offering. Not that aluminum only would have ever been a death sentence. It would just kind of locks you into, you know, one niche. And we wanted to do more than just that. So we started looking into it. And then ultimately, after a little bit of research, we just realized, okay, well, if we want it to we, we don't want to just ship it off and get in line at another factory just like everybody else. And we want to make it here. We want the cost to be what we think it should be as a GG bike. By the way, the impact resistance on traditional carbon isn't great, so we should fix that too. And, uh, well, I guess we're just going to have to figure out a new way to do it, which definitely took longer. So if we would have not put those requirements on ourselves, we could have launched a carbon frame at least one year earlier and maybe even more than that. Uh, because it took a solid probably year and a half of just R&D of just looking at materials. And uh, so this was pre-Ben's time of that was when I was just looking for materials of what, you know, what, what can be made and, you know, what, what makes sense to make a mountain bike frame out of maybe something that's not traditional carbon fiber uh, that just makes more sense. And so we looked at everything under the sun, starting with all kinds of stuff. Basically, there was one year where there was a local test lab and we just had stuff at that test lab constantly for the entire year. And it was here, run this, run this through here, run some tests on this stuff. Now break this. Now pull that apart. When, By the way, when you say stuff, you mean different materials. Like yeah. we might say non-carbon, right? Because as a question, like why not if, if you, there's certain things about carbon that I think those listening to this will assume that you guys like certain riding characteristics and the, and the like, but was there a serious question about maybe we just don't use carbon, right? Uh, I wouldn't say, I mean, we looked at non-carbon stuff, but really, I mean, carbon fiber itself is so strong and so stiff that the fibers, carbon fibers make a lot of sense in a mountain bike. Uh, the challenge was always the impact resistance. So like any traditionally made carbon fiber frame, you put it on a test rig and apply loads in kind of ideal scenarios. And, you know, they it does really well. Is the weird things like a rock hitting it. That's where it doesn't do well. So that's kind of what we focused on. So the fibers we use are, you know, they're the same fibers are used in many other bikes. And we're using full length uh, continuous 
fibers just like most other mountain bikes. Uh, the resin system is different, which is uh, sounds like a smaller change than it really is because it fundamentally changes the entire composite and the way you make it and the way it performs. Yeah, so uh, kind of the big revolution, you know, with the composites. When we talk about traditional composites versus the new rev technology and that's the difference between a thermoset and a thermoplastic if you really want to get down to it so thermoset carbon fiber versus thermoplastic carbon fiber the resin system that's detailed within that that's where the the strength advantages come from that's where the impact advantages come from so it's kind of like the new wave in the composites world if you open any composites magazine for like the high level manufacturing everyone's switching to thermoplastics because there's so many benefits to it and there's really no downsides besides the tooling is more expensive and it that's really that's kind of it <laughs> well it requires if you're already manufacturing thermostat carbon composites it requires you to redo your factory which to answer your previous question about why didn't we start with the traditional method and then switch that's why that's why yep uh which is a barrier to entry of other manufacturers is you know if you have a factory that's producing you know tens of thousands of carbon frames a year or more and you have this method and it's working it's you know i think that's why ultimately why we were able to be the first one to do it because we didn't already have a factory that was at scale producing things in a certain way we started with the question of well we're going to have to create this from scratch so what makes the most sense and we're asking the question at this point in time, and we're going to use the latest technology available at this point in time. Yeah, that's really the what it boils down to is the right place, right time. You know, if you guys have had tried to, you know, develop this technology a few years or earlier, it wouldn't have happened. And there are other companies that got beat to the punch by it too, like BMW. You know, has this, you know, this process with resin transfer molding with thermoset, which is, you know, by thermoset standards, it's a really advanced process. But I think had they been a couple years later in that development for their cars, they would have certainly chosen a thermoplastic composite. Huh. Yeah. So one interesting fact is when we first started looking into um, doing our own carbon fiber in 2015, the method and the materials that we use now were actually not yet available. So they became available while we were looking for them. Yep. So it was, you know, just a matter of months after the material that we use for our frames became commercially available that we found it. And so it's brand new. Yeah. And to that point, thermoplastics have been around for a while and they've been used in composites, but thermoplastics 20 years ago versus thermoplastics today of a modern variety, they're, you know, it's like comparing like a, a Tesla Model S to, a, you know, a Model T Ford. So they're, they're quite advanced compared to, you know, thermoplastics of the past. Yeah. But when we found the material, it had traditionally, uh, you know, it, it became commercialized by using it for like panel shapes, like wings bars and that sort of thing. I believe Boeing was the first one to really put it into production. And so what didn't exist was the ability to make a hollow structural unit out of it. So we found the material, it checked all the boxes for material properties, but there was no way to make a bike frame out of it. So we found our material and then we had to figure out how to do that. Uh, and that's what a lot of our IP is around, is figuring out how to make a hollow structural unit out of this material, because that technology didn't exist before we figured it out. So Matt goes to Will or Will goes to Matt and says, we found this cool material. Now we just need to figure out how to make a hollow structure. And then you're like, we should probably hire some dude named Ben. 
like how where does that how do or are you already in at this point it was, uh no not at that point yeah yeah, yeah no it was it's pretty iterative uh so i mean uh i was the only engineer until we hired ben so you know it's pretty easy to say that i did all the engineering but it's not really true uh will's helping just the uh it's almost really helpful that his background isn't engineering but it's been around all this engineering and manufacturing because he it helps as an engineer to have somebody that's not an engineer say, well, what if we could do this? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. We yeah. should try to figure that out. I think if I had been involved earlier, I probably would have said, this is going to be way too hard. We should do something <laughs> different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you guys were already kind of far, far along, you know, and you had figured out a, a couple key elements. And at that point, it was like, okay, actually, there is some merit to this. But, you know, from that initial concept, I think if I had been involved earlier, I probably would have wrote it off pretty easily. Yeah, so basically it was essentially Will and I both were kind of developing this. It wasn't really like I did this chunk and then he did this chunk. It yep. was we, kind of, we had this idea of what we wanted the company to grow into, and this was just a discussion that happened as part of that, and things started growing it. We're originally, I think, was just this crazy idea of like, well, you know, we, maybe we could try this. It was, and then it just grew from there into like, we really, you know, oh, maybe we should really start looking into this heavily. And we did. And then eventually it was like, oh, this shows some promise. Let's really push the throttle on this pretty hard. And then it was uh, when we, uh, we, after we had some proof of concept parts and a provisional patent, in place and then we said okay we're gonna do this uh now let's put a timeline on it and now let's really get going and now we're gonna need another engineer yeah so at that point are you are you just excited you're like hell yeah or are you scared or were you first excited and then realized later like oh shit like this is going to be a lot trickier than we thought or did you come in don't lie did you come in off the bat thinking we've got something here, but this is going to be a hell of a thing to try to put together and really pull off. Yes. <laughs> I, I <laughs> to all say, that. <laughs> yeah. I would say scared really set in, uh, set in kind of like second half of 2018 when it's like, because for a while, for a long time, it was like we set this goal of like, let's launch it in the beginning of 2019. But when you're in 2017, you're like, oh man, that's like so far off into the future. Right. We'll figure out sure. all this stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, Mid 2018, it's like, oh man, we got to launch this thing coming up pretty soon. We need to really get it done. But it started off, it was, it's been, I mean, for me, it was, uh, I would say, 98% excitement. Because this, doing things like this, is the whole reason that I was in for taking the tough road to begin with. Because I already, you know, I had an engineering job that, you know, that was a lot easier than this before we started the company. Uh, but that was, things like this are why I was willing to, you know, leave the corporate world and co-found a company was to do things like this. So it's, that part was really exciting. Now there's obviously been a lot of tough times and, you know, some scary times is when it came down to like, okay, we need to really like solve these issues right here and get this thing into production. But yeah, mostly excitement. Yeah. And then Will had a lot to do, you know, we want to advance manufacturing grant, which Will can talk about more, but yeah, I want to get I want to get yeah. to this grant actually. So, first you uh, get a patent on this idea. Still for, pending. Turns yeah. out patents have a twenty one month lead time at the moment. Twenty one month lead time. All right, patent pending. 
But yeah, this grant process is very interesting. Okay, we're gonna back up though before we talk about grants. We're having this very fancy sounding conversation about like these high tech composites and the rest. And to address the elephant or gorilla in the room, as I've known about you guys for some years, this Gorilla Gravity brand isn't exactly like it didn't conjure for me ideas of like having fancy, sophisticated sounding discussions about composites. And like in the ski world, for example, like some of the companies that are really making claims about, you know, doing innovative and interesting things in composites, they sort of sound like companies in their, their branding kind of looks like companies like that sounds fancy and, you know, future force or whatever type of thing. So I don't know, help me square this. So the Gorilla Gravity brand, Gorilla Gravity, the name comes from Gorilla being a community driven effort to spark change. And then gravity's our most favorite part of biking. And so it's really a, uh, it's kind of idea. The idea is that it's a company of the people and we want to drive, you know, making bikes more accessible, improving them for what we consider the average rider, which would be an average enthusiast. So we want to create innovations that are going to make bikes better for everyone. And so that's where a lot of the kind of economic drivers behind the manufacturing method came from. How do we improve the performance of bikes while also not making them more expensive? And so just kind of creating that, you know, kind of squaring that up uh, kind of forces you to solve problems a little bit differently. So once again, it all comes back to, you know, to the benefit of the riders. Yeah. And we uh, also didn't really expect people to expect this coming from us uh, because they only know what they know, what they've seen from the outside. And I think it's fair to expect that, you know, a company that's making uh, fairly aggressive aluminum frame, full suspension bikes with kind of a, you know, metal influence in the naming. They're probably not expecting us to be figuring out new ways to make composite parts, but that's fine. They know now. So that's just what we've been, uh, we've kind of had that focus from the beginning of, I mean, if you look back now in hindsight, it probably makes sense of like, oh, we started with, let's make a downhill bike and we made it ourselves in my garage. And then we started production of these things and uh you know in hindsight it probably makes a little bit more sense but we can definitely see why people didn't expect that yeah back to grants right and so my understanding is you guys actually you know applied for maybe a number of grants on this and won a few uh so we've won three grants over the life of the company uh we won two in 2015 uh one from the city of denver and one from jp morgan chase and then we won one from the state in 2018. And that was an advanced industries grant, specifically the advanced manufacturing segment. So that certainly required some outside of the box thinking from the review committee uh, for the state because we were the first outdoor rec company to win this. Typically it was aerospace, bioscience, renewables, that sort of thing. So a lot of it is driven by introducing advanced manufacturing methods in a space where they don't really exist currently. So I'm curious if you still have kind of dialed in the very quick sort of elevator pitch, right? So somebody shows up and you've got like, I don't know, 15 seconds. Like, what, the, what do you do? Yeah, we developed a bike manufacturing method that reduces labor by 90%. 
And that was enough to get people right there. Yeah. Yeah. That was very well done. Give me then the sort That's of second. <laughs> You're good at your job. He's well practiced. Keep him around, that. Matt. <laughs> yeah. Um, give me the like the slightly fuller version then. So you start with uh, who's, who's my audience? Because that that depends on the jargon I use. Okay. Probably, um, probably the people listening to this. People that are <laughs> people that are uh, you're trying to get them to write a pretty sizable check to you. Uh, so we have developed a new bike manufacturing method that allows us to reduce labor by 90% while also improving the impact resistance by 300%. And what this means is that we can now nearshore our manufacturing and be cost competitive with Asia. So it stands to disrupt the supply chain of the industry because it's a labor cost agnostic manufacturing method. So now you can locate your manufacturing so it's strategically, geographically strategic. Uh, no longer do you have to rely on long lead times and you know high inventory uh, and that sort of thing. So it dramatically lowers your cost of capital as well. That's correct. <laughs> Very well done. Um, did you tend to get pretty immediate reactions of like, wow, that's cool? Or were they still like, whatever, you weird bike people? So, I mean, there's certainly some people that get it more than others. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of you know, especially at like a institutional investing level, they don't really expect much innovation to come out of, you know, bicycle manufacturing side of it. It's uh, it's traditionally been a pretty low margin, very intensive supply chain, not much to not much to gain. Uh, so we're kind of, you know, we found a way to, to change that. So it sort of rings true to some people and then others are like, eh, probably not. Let's get back to this revved carbon. When you say things like it's 300% more impact resistant compared to what, right? I mean, there's a lots of lots of things going on under the name of carbon. So, what are we what are we comparing this to? Yeah, so we're comparing it to traditional thermoset carbon composites if they're made similarly. Okay. So, at two revved. Uh, and so that number it was Pretty difficult to come up with, to essentially get that number. Yeah. Uh, so we did a lot of testing and probably, I think, more rounds of testing on that than anything else to come up with, like, well, how much better is this? And actually, that 300% number is fairly conservative. You know, we could make numbers anywhere from like 500 to 800%, but at, at the end of the day, probably people won't even believe us. So 300% actually is, you know, it's absolutely true. It, this stuff performs at such a high level compared to any other carbon fiber as far as resisting impact strikes. Yeah, they make truck beds out of this stuff. GMC just launched their truck bed made out of a similar material. Yeah, we read all the uh, advertising. We're like, oh, hey, <laughs> that sounds familiar. But anyway, so back to the question directly. So to come up with that, we started uh, pretty early on. It was actually one of Ben's, I think, first projects was... Uh, uh, I put on them of like, okay, take this sample material. We started with just flat uh, material coupons, which would just be, they were little rectangles of carbon. And so we we started with some, essentially what we ended up using for REVD. And we also then got some traditionally manufactured carbon fiber panels out of uh, similar fibers to try to match like for like as much as possible and compare just the thermal set to the thermal plastic. Sent those off to the test lab, and there's some ASTM testing for anvil dropping and 
strength after impact testing. And we did that and it was kind of, and we also compared aluminum and uh, we got a lot of data out of it and it was a little trickier than we kind of thought to really make the comparison of, well, what does this mean as a mountain bike frame? So we, you know, we did a few rounds of that testing and then we did some, I think additional round tube testing. We were trying to figure out, okay, the coupon testing wasn't quite as, you know, it didn't give us exactly the picture that we thought it would of trying to get the comparison. Uh, so we tried a few different ways and then ultimately said, like, okay, well, to really show people how much better this is and like really get the comparison, we're just going to have to smash actual frames. Uh, and so that was what we did. Uh, obviously, we had to make a few of the first frames first before we arrived at the final uh, kind of number. But yeah, so we just built a rig called the Frame Breaker 0.3000. It's pretty low tech. And just put front triangles in there and dropped a sledgehammer from varying heights. And uh, the baseline was uh, on our aluminum front triangles. And we set that drop height uh, where there was two different, two different drop heights. One was, here's the biggest hit that we've seen customers email us with, with, oh my God, I smashed this rock. Is this frame okay? So we did that test. And then we did the next test, which was the highest drop height available, which was just the uh, sledgehammer starting from vertical. And essentially, the uh, you know comparing a similar thermoset carbon frame to a revved frame was ultimately how we came up with that number. And the cool thing about composites compared to traditionalized tropic materials are you know you can you can configure the laminate in any way to you know increase impact resistance just by messing with the ply orientations alone. So, um, you know, the best ply shapes are what you would call a quasi isotropic laminate schedule. So you've got, you know, almost a balanced ply stack, you know, equal angles all the way through the laminate. And that's going to work really well. But at a certain point, you can only take traditional carbon fiber impact resistance as far as the material will, will allow you. So you can do things like integrating some Kevlar into it and you can create a super balanced ply layup with isotropic materials and, and use a lower modulus fiber and, you know, a resin system that's, you know, better at impact resistance. But the, at the end of the day, that kind of all pales in comparison to thermoplastic performance, you know. So yes, you can take a traditional bike and make it work a little bit towards impact resistance you know if you need more strength at the down tube you can do things like make it thicker but it's all kind of like this crutch you know the material just still doesn't hold up to what thermoplastic performance is going to be so when we say our materials thermal or impact resistant we're not just designing the down tube to be impact resistance like every part of our frame is just inherently strong in impact resistance just because it's made out of the new material yeah so Kind of another analogy that might be uh, that more people probably understand would be say if you like if you're making a coffee mug and you're like man I just knocked this thing off my desk and it broke on the floor uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend a ton of engineering to make this coffee mug not break anymore and you could like work on different ceramic materials and like oh we changed the furnace firing temperature to this and we made it a little thicker here and we rounded this corner there and we put this little thing in there and after all this engineering you're like all right i think i can drop this uh, ceramic coffee mug and not have it break and then someone comes along and says here's one made out of aluminum that's kind of where we're at yeah that's a better analogy <laughs> <laughs> He sits between the uh, the marketing and the engineering, and uh, 
that was very much the engineering explanation. Yeah. And then that was kind of the, the layman's explanation. Yeah. Which you kind of have to, you I've, know, you have I've, to. Exactly. I have more that. years of trying to make it uh, easier for most non-engineers to understand. Yeah. But he is the director of composites engineering. So that's the explanation. we. Ben is the know. director yeah, I, of Yeah, I, pro- I probably should know that stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's a correct explanation coming from him. <laughs> next, next time you're tempted to talk, Ben, just think mugs. How would I explain this in terms of coffee mugs? And then, then yeah, you'll perfect. Be... I, can, I like coffee. I can do that. <laughs> Sweet. Um, Speaking of coffee, you should see his coffee setup. Ben's? Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. Is it here? It's downstairs. Sick. Yeah. You don't have to run off and do anything. They all make fun of me because I weigh my coffee and do it's a pour over. But it, it makes. It, uh, the universe is complete when you see his coffee set up. Wow. I cannot <laughs> wait. I cannot it's, wait. It, all the pieces of the puzzle come together. You're like, yep, that makes sense. Okay. Yep, he would do that. Yep. Perfect. <laughs> this is excellent. 47 beans, not 48. <laughs> I, what was the one time we were having a discussion about... I love this. There's two two of my favorite discussions with Ben. One was we were at lunch one time talking about hiring people. And he said that one time... Uh, what your old job he's like you know the boss took a stack of resumes took the top half threw them away and said we don't hire unlucky people <laughs> and then <laughs> <laughs> we we do not hire unlucky people here at Gorilla Gravity <laughs> that is my, amazing yeah my other favorite conversation with him was one time he was going off on a rant about people using like unnecessary precision while he had his uh, coffee like steeping system on a gram scale that measured to the tenth of a gram, measuring in like the exact grams of water <laughs> in his coffee system, and uh, you know there was also a rate of water application. You can't just pour it in; you have to like pour it in at a specific rate. And I was like, "Oh man, the I, irony of this situation." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can recognize the irony, but it was really good coffee. So. All right, can I have some? Like, are we? Or is it the wrong time of day to make coffee like when we wrap? Because yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I can make some coffee all right. afterwards. <laughs> all right, I, I, I might, I might, be, I might need some. I feel like we're hyping it up now, and then you're gonna get it, and then it's not gonna be as good. We're gonna do a full long form blister review of your coffee. Oh man, so, uh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. So, let me try to do a bit of a recap here on this like carbon 2.0 thing that you guys are developing. So, um, what I've got is. This revved carbon is similarly stiff with quote-unquote 300% increased impact resistance. It is 90% less labor-intensive. Will is nodding in approval. Uh, So we've got it's easier and quicker to manufacture, more durable, less fragile, less expensive to produce. We're shortening a supply chain and can be produced in-house. Are we happy with this recap? Anything we need to add? I think I would just add that uh, this is essentially what the entire composites industry is switching to, which Ben talked a a little bit about, but I think that's a pretty big chunk of it. Uh, And so, yeah, just to kind of reiterate what he said is open up any composites engineering magazine and they're at least half of these magazines and like the trade show that we went to, most of that trade show which was a world composites trade show, uh, most of the focus of the entire industry is switching everybody over to thermoplastic composite manufacturing. 
moving to thermoplastic composite manufacturing and moving away from thermoset. Thermoset. Okay. Yeah, and for any of the keyboard warriors who might uh, pick up on the the labor number, uh, I'm thinking that we're taking jobs away or whatever. So. The labor hours to manufacture a rev frame is similar to the labor hours for an aluminum frame. So we're taking a process that's taken well over 40 hours and we're making it take less than 10. And a lot of those labor hours that are involved in a tradi traditional thermoset frame, you know, they're, they're sanding and it's paint prep and just all the deflashing that comes with it. And then the, the layup's super tedious and non-repeatable and, you know, don't get me wrong, people are really good at making thermoset frames, but it's just such a tedious, labor-intensive process that, you know, there's just so much room to improve on it. There is there is some pink bike comment that uh, that was about how it didn't take enough labor hours or something, and we were, like, taking people's jobs here or something, like, for some reason, but that's not how that works at all. Yeah, the company's growing. <laughs> we're, we're definitely adding more jobs than, yeah. than removing <laughs> Ah, pink bike comments. Yeah. Oh, man. Let's talk about modular designs. So, yeah, in addition to this fancy new carbon, you guys are doing something pretty different, entirely different? Yeah, no one else has really been able to offer a modular frame platform. So it, it kind of changes the way someone would buy a bike because no longer do you buy one model and you're locked into that model. So if you ride bike parks on the weekend or... Uh, you know, say you move from one part of the country to the other part of the country. Now you just need a parts kit, which would be our seat stay kit, in order to swap between the models. So it's this whole kind of new ecosystem and way to think about buying a bike uh, that gives the riders a ton of value. And, you know, I think a lot of the reason, perhaps, that it hasn't happened before would be there's kind of an incentive problem when you have a third party factory making your frames because that factory wants to sell as many things as possible to their customer, which is the brand. So, you know, for us, we're selling fewer frames or stand to sell fewer frames because we're offering kits. But once again, it adds a ton of value to the riders buying the bikes. Yeah, so that would be kind of on the incentive side of things. And on the engineering side of things, uh, we just saw it as, you know, the difference between what makes a great uh, short travel 29er and a long travel 27 and a half inch bike is not that much as far as what the actual frame design itself would be. Uh, so we didn't see that it would really make sense to put in all this huge amount of engineering, all this mold design, all this mold machining, all this process creation and tracking all this different, uh, all these different parts and skews and processes to change the an angle by a quarter degree or move this thing by a few millimeters. So something like that, we're like, you know, we can easily just make this a kit and uh, we need to just make some changes in the, we can handle the rear suspension changes in the seat stay because our suspension layout, the seat stay includes the rear axle and uh, the rear shock mount and uh, also the rocker mount, which has an influence on the kinematics. And so we can change all the uh, rear suspension kinematics with just that one part. And then up front, we just needed to adjust a little bit of ride height and reach for just different front end heights and different usages. And so it was like, well, you know, we've seen reach adjust headsets before and we buy headsets that have this aluminum bearing cup in there and the bearing is in the center of that thing. And 
we have CNC machines and design and make our own frames. Let's just make this headset cup ourselves and just put the bearing knot in the center and then just offer lower headset cups of a couple different heights. And there's your front ride height changes that's necessary to make a handful of different models. And then all the seat stay changes. Uh, we can uh, change the rocker position from model to model, which if you look closely, it moves a little bit depending on what leverage curve shape we wanted. Uh, and then the shock length, stroke, and where it's positioned changes travel, also leverage curve and things like that. And then the seat stay itself, we can also adjust chain stay length, even though the physical, what we call a swing arm, remains the same between all the models, the actual chain stay length can change. So it's essentially, there doesn't need to be humongous changes from model to model in what the frame manufacturing requires. And so they're just small tweaks. And so all of those we were able to handle with just doing a couple different kit parts, and it ends up as a benefit to the rider. And you guys kind of had a soft rollout with that on the aluminum bikes too. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. It almost started somewhat by accident, which was uh, on the previous-gen aluminum frames. Uh, we started off when we released the Trail Pistol, which was a short-travel 29er uh, in 2016. We knew when we designed it that we were going to want to use – uh, a lot of the same tubing for the new mega trail that was going to be coming six months later. And so the design, this was again, kind of where it was helpful to have Will's non-engineering kind of background, but of like, you know, it looks, it's a lot of work to fabricate all these tubes. What if we, you know, use the same tube sets for these different models and then just use different shock tabs and things like that. And I was like, yeah, we can, we can do that. It's, you know, I can move the shock points around a little bit and easily change the suspension from a short travel 29er to a long travel 27 half. Sure. Yeah, let's do that. So we did that. And, you know, it's a benefit. Uh, it's uh, ultimately upped our capacity and brought down lead times. So then when we launched the new Mega Trail in 2017, this is the aluminum one. Right after that is when people were like, oh, hey, we want a long travel 29er. You guys have a short travel 29er and a long travel 27 and a half. Well, then it was pretty quick that people realized that uh, you could take a shred dog, which was the short-stroked version of a mega trail, and put 29er wheels in it. And it was like, oh, hey, this is basically a longer travel 29er. It's like 145 travel 29er. And uh, we we're like, well, you know, if it's, and people, a few people did it and we're pretty stoked on it. We we're like, well, heck, we could just make seat stays for that and, change the suspension a little bit and dial it in exactly what we wanted. And we, so we did that, and that was the Smash, which was essentially a uh, mega trail with that we just designed a new seat stay kit for, and it became the most popular model. So then when we started on the revved uh, carbon frame design, we just said, okay, well, we can make the front shock mount point the same on all of them. Uh, which the trail pistol used a different shot, uh, front shock mount tab. So we can just bring all those into the same thing. And we can just start from the ground up and just base them all on the same frame and just make seat stay kits. And then this geo-adjust headset takes care of some of ride height changes and reach adjustment and just the whole system really just made a lot more sense. And we were able, since we were doing a wholesale swap over to the Revd platform, we were able to kind of design everything in concert with each other. So, you know, it'd be different if we were trying to roll out, you know, one model at a time sort of thing. Uh, but since it was just a wholesale swap over, that made it possible. So what would you, how would you answer, let's say, a cynical 
response to this and that says somebody's like, yeah, you know, these guys are just cutting corners here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we could see why some keyboard warriors might think that, but uh, it's really, it goes back to what people want out of, you know, a short travel this versus long travel that and mid travel this or this wheel size versus that other wheel sizes. The frame doesn't really need to change all that much. Uh, and so we just take care of all of it in the few pieces that do change. So there's, again, it's it would be silly to go through all this ton of engineering and manufacturing and just to, you know, move ahead to a couple millimeters, you know, which goes back to the original idea we had way back in the day of bikes are getting more complicated, but not necessarily to the benefit of the rider. So, you know, ultimately your people are paying more for bikes because, you know, this model's head tube is three millimeters different than that one over there or something like that. And, you know, whereas if they're all brought on a modular frame platform, you just make things in a more, you get a more economy of scale and it just ends up as a higher value to everybody. Uh, but to answer that directly again, it'd be different if we we're also trying to include say an XC race bike in a downhill bike on this same platform, that wouldn't work. And that's also where we drew the line of this platform cannot include either of those. So I could see someone being a cynic if we did have that, but all of our bikes are really all mountain bikes. So they're designed to really kind of ride everything up and down. So, you know, we, we hit a chunk, the kind of middle most meat of the market with those four models. And it's really just kind of choosing your flavor. Yeah, and you can accomplish a lot with different build kits. Yeah. So, I mean, the difference between specking like a RockShox Deluxe RT and a Pike versus specking a 36 and DHX2, uh, you know, that's going to make a several pound difference on your bike and also very much change how it rides. So if you have a trail pistol set up with lightweight parts, carbon wheels, that suspension set up, and then you have, you know, a smash or... Uh, equivalent, you can uh, you can do a mixed wheel size with this platform, which is another really unique benefit is kind of the hacks available. So the Mega Smash, and then you have that set up for park riding with, you know, heavier duty wheels, downhill tires, coil shock, you know, 36 fork out at, you know, 180 mils of travel. Those are very different bikes and they different weights, different wheelbases, everything like that. And there would be no reason to to really change the the frame substantially, um, aside from making that available. So you really you kind of were able to to have that spectrum uh, just through swapping out those parts, and that's really where all you know a lot of bikes have gone. So it's pretty interesting to hear though to say, hey, so we just we were willing to say or the way that we're doing things, we don't see these as compromises because we were willing to give up the ends of the the extremes, right? So yeah, exactly. if, if I'm looking for the lightest weight XC bike out there to just pedal uphill all the time, it's like, maybe I'm not going to be buying a Gorilla Gravity right now. Um, and you're like, cool, we'll just get away from that and go to where, I don't know what percentage, but a very, very big percentage of people looking for a bike that I can kind of go do most anything on. Yeah, if you draw the bell curve of mountain bike usage, yeah, we're in the uh, area that's contained within two sigma, so that'll be you know most of the chunk, and then the uh, the three sigma pieces on the end is someone else. Can you explain that in terms of coffee mugs? Uh, yeah, 
could do it on size. So most people want like a, you know, 12 to 16 ounce coffee mug. Yeah. Some people want like the big gulp 40 ounce coffee mug. So we don't have the, the 40 ounce and some, you know, want like little travel espressos maybe. Yeah. <laughs> that's no, probably the person who wants a 22 pound XC bike. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Kind of go hand in hand, I guess. Will comes in to save the day. <laughs> yeah. Those, those words. Yeah. And, you know, we would be lying if, you know, the tooling benefit, you know, if we didn't at least address that, you know, because if you, with the modular frame platform, you are able to have less tooling. And because the rev tooling is more involved than a traditional frame, you know, in order to, you know, make it work, it'd be difficult to not have a singular modular frame yeah no there's definitely wins on the manufacturing side but it, we see it as a total win-win mm-hmm. so the riders get this whole new level of value that they've never been able to get before and then we're able to provide made in u.s carbon bikes with 300 percent better impact resistance at the price we do uh, and that's one of the pieces of the puzzle yeah which came back to starting with well what how should this be done not let's just do it the way that it's done. You know, let's have 17 different models, and this one's 122 millimeters travel, and this one's 125 millimeters travel, and this one works on enduro trails, but not aggressive trail trails or <laughs> something. You know, it's, they're, they're mountain bikes. You know, we're hitting the middle, uh, the biggest chunk of the market where people are riding them up, riding them down, whatever trail you want to ride, just pick one of these and go. So that's really what they work well for. Do you have a current favorite bike in the, in your lineup? So I ride a Pistola, which is one of the hacks that we have available. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have a secret menu, uh, ridegg.com slash 666, spelled out. It's pretty <laughs> Bobby had fun with that one yeah. on the graphics. So Pistola is basically a long-stroked trail pistol, so 130 travel trail pistol. Um that, that hits the sweet spot for me. I ride a size three and I'm on the sh- short end of the size three, um, right about five, nine. So I have it wheelbase wise set up as short as possible. So it's really playful, but then you have slightly more travel for um, being able to rally descents a little more, I guess. Hmm. Matt? Uh, so when Will was describing earlier about how you could have a trail pistol and then you can convert it over to like a long travel coil sprung beast, that's exactly what I've done. So I like the trail pistol also quite a bit for our uh, most of our riding. We do like front range trail rides and I also like to do a lot of like high country rides in the summer. And I like the trail pistol a lot for that. And also I have mine set up as a Pistola 130 travel uh, rear 140 up front with a pike and you know, nothing to at least the parts are as light as they will survive on my bike. And then I'm headed to Whistler in, uh, tomorrow. Actually. Tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, and for that, I converted it over to a Mega Smash. So swapped the fork out for a 170 Travel Fox 36, mm-hmm. uh, 29 up front uh, with a, I think 2.5 double down tire with Cush Core. And then the rear is a mega trail uh, coil sprung Fox X2 with a, you know, double down Cush Core rear. So it basically went from a, you know, 130 travel 29er trail bike setup as light as I can get it to, uh, you know, 170, 165 travel coil sprung beefy tire setup. And it definitely feels like a completely different bike. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm on a smash right now. Yeah. And I'm going to build up my new bike. Uh, 
I'm, I'm finally getting my red bike too. So I'm pretty excited about that. So, um, yeah, going to build up another smash. Yeah. It, it helps. Uh, I'm, I haven't, I don't have the experience. So the smash kind of like helps me feel safer, I guess, you know, the stability yep. and like the longer travel, it's, it's saved me a lot of times where, you know, I, if I run out of talent on a jump or something, <laughs> you know, so yeah, but it's, it's been good. And yeah, it's, it's been fun to be a part of a mountain bike company. You know, the culture is great. And when you do get to ride, it's awesome. And, I need to wrap this up pretty soon because I need to get some coffee from Ben. So I'd, <laughs> I'd love to keep talking to you guys, but I got to go. Two, I two last questions, basically. One, how are orders going? How, I mean, you've got this, you know, new carbon. Uh, how's production going? Are orders coming in? You okay here? You don't, you look all pretty calm, actually. And <laughs> given everything I've heard today, um, I'm wondering how stoic you're being at the moment, but how's life on production and or order fronts? I'd say we're being pretty stoic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's busy. Uh, we have, I think we have as many bikes in the queue as we've delivered so far this year. So it's, uh, yeah, we're, we're very much focusing on ramping up production and that's, you know, it's a brand new process. So it's certainly not without its challenges. We're asking questions and trying to do things that have never been asked or solved before. Um, so that's, that's definitely not without its daily challenges. Um, but you know, we're figuring out and we're muscled through it and yeah, sales are really good. It's, we're just trying to figure out how to make enough of them, which we have a clear path, but it's one foot in front of the other, but that doesn't mean the path is easy. Yeah. Demand's been high. We're trying to, uh, build them faster. Last question then. You, Matt, used the word uh, ambition or ambitions uh, a couple times in this conversation. And, and uh, you know, we're talking about a lot of seemingly very interesting and exciting stuff here. And um, I guess I'm left with the question of where this goes or how big of a company do you guys think Gorilla Gravity could become Let's talk a little bit about ambitions. I'd say, I'd say our goal is to be a top three mountain bike company. So yeah, we're we're aware of the the scale that that requires and what that involves. Uh, so we're you know actively building it out and scaling it and everything, all of the requisite items for that. So yeah, I mean we're chipping away at it. It doesn't happen overnight though. Interesting. This has been really fun. I appreciate the information and the conversations and the mug analogies uh and uh all the best to you guys uh, with what you are currently doing and what you're still hoping to do and uh this has been uh, really cool to get this story right from the horse's mouth as it were so yeah. the narnivore's mouth then right from the narnivore's <laughs> mouth uh let's uh we should go get some coffee and uh i want to go check out some narnivore portraits or graphics so uh i think that would be the next fitting next step Thanks guys, for us. thanks so much. Yeah, no, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to Will, Ben, and Matt for the conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. Thanks to you for listening. And we will talk to you again next week where we've already got another great conversation teed up for you. 